Oh, hello. And welcome to a very special 100th episode of the Performance Matters podcast sponsored by your talent transformation partners at GP Strategies. I'm your host, Michael Teal, and in this very special episode, we'll take a look back at 10 episodes from this past year that we think are deserving of another listen. Or if you're new to the podcast, first of all, welcome, but also a great place to begin your journey with us here at the podcast. For each episode, we'll go ahead and just give you a quick listen to the first question where we jump into the heart of the matter. And for more, we would encourage you to go ahead and visit that referenced episode either through following our podcast and giving it a quick scrub or heading over to GP Strategies and finding our podcast home in our resources section. On behalf of the entire team at GP Strategies, we wish you and your organization much success in your talent transformation efforts in the coming year. Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters podcast from GP Strategies, your workforce transformation partner. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts and explore best practices and innovative insights to help your organization improve performance. The first episode I'd like to highlight is episode 79. The topic was the evolution of learning in the flow of work. I really enjoyed my conversation with Linda Lampert. She's a director here at GP Strategies and specializes in human and organizational performance consulting. She has been there, done that, got the t-shirt in terms of really witnessing the evolution of the flow of work in the past 25 years. There was a lot of wisdom here. I really enjoyed learning and listening from Linda and invite you to check out a snippet. You know, today's topic really is this concept of the evolution of learning and the flow of work. What I want you to do is put out your crystal ball here a little bit. Everyone has a different perspective on the future of work. I mean, what's your perspective on what we're going to be seeing here in the in the coming years? You know, the future of work is impacted by so many factors, and it seems like what you think of it is is based on the lens that you're wearing, you know? So you think about things like people think about the availability, the capabilities of technology, obviously influencing things. Economic factors are obviously coming into play with the future of work. Um, and then of course we have this minor global plan pandemic that has, <laughs> you know, come and impacted things. So all of those things, we're seeing so many impacts, everything from, you know, there are large and growing skill deficits that we're seeing, um, you know, the idea of a move away from the core office and everything that that means, that idea of hybrid work is a huge change as well. And then, you know, other things that are much more, you know, maybe more recent and more modern. So the idea of not just taking into account diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI, but also um, environment and social and and governance concerns. They call it ESG, right? So depending, as I said, on your lens, that future of work can have many impacts. You know, I'm a simple person, so I like to boil it down to to really simplify things and think about this from a perspective of who is doing the work, what are they doing, where are they doing the work, and how are they doing it? So Linda, I like where your head's at here. Let's talk about this first element, and that is who is doing the work? So how is this going to change in the coming years? This is a huge, huge change, and and HR people are all over this already. Um, you know, changes in the workforce will have a huge impact on who is doing the work for many, many organizations. So think about that. I mean, first of all, obviously, everybody's heard about the great resignation. You know, for yeah. a lot of companies, that means a less experienced workforce that's hired in to backfill for those experienced people who have you know, gone away, and they're going to be the ones performing job tasks, which is a big change. Newer employees with less experience with the company, even if they have previous job experience, they don't have experience with the company. The other thing, another thing we're seeing is in the aftermath of COVID, a lot of companies are looking at different kinds of staffing scenarios. So one of the big ones is that there is a transition to the greater use of contract workers, because then they can move their um, workforces up and down as necessary. 
And then this implementation of what, you know, what people call a gig economy, which is, you know, those people that come in and do kind of the last mile, the Uber drivers of the world, the the, the people who deliver the pizzas to you at night. Um, and so it's really blurring our traditional understanding of what work is. You know, for us in, in learning, that can really translate into just this constant need to train up new contractors and new gig workers as they onboard continuously. So it's it's kind of like what we used to see with seasonal employees, but now it's potentially all year round. And then the last thing I'll mention um, is really the use of AI and machine learning. So this is that technology part of the future, right? right? And this is where, you know, this kind of ability to have technology make smart decisions it's it's reducing the value of elite skills. Those really experienced employees who are the ones where you couldn't train somebody to do what they can do because they have that decision-making capability. And those are the people that they had those jobs that were very hard to backfill. As you think about the fact that these technologies can come in and backfill for them, it gives companies all kinds of flexibility in terms of how they define the workforce and who they hire to do that work. From number two, I'd like to highlight episode 82, Skills Management in the Larger Learning Landscape with special guest panelists, John Plaskwellick and Jai Shaw. We know that skills, the concept of skills management is certainly a buzzword right now. Jai, let's start with you on this. Why is this such a trending topic? You know, what we're finding is that organizations today are craving that data to help them with decision-making. We've had so much investment in how to measure your supply chain, how to measure the performance of your equipment, automation. It's really time that measurement of human performance, not in a judgmental way, but in a uh, kind of an objective way to help both the worker and the organization get the best outcome. It's time that, that you know, organizations have been need to invest in those solutions um, and it's all about making that worker better, making the workforce more competitive. Um, I think, you know, there's there's no um, it, it's not a coincidence that also many of the core industries that are interested in this problem are also going through a lot of change right now. So if you look at energy, for instance, you know, uh, the, the green revolution, non uh, traditional resources, that takes a different skill set than drilling for traditional oil or even drilling for oil in more complicated ways and deeper and deeper environments. That takes a different skill set. Um, so change in the industry is a big driver. Uh, and then finally, you know, there is a little thing called COVID, the pandemic influence <laughs> of, you know, <laughs> just a new way to work virtually and understand where your skills and capability really exists within the organization and then being able to kind of manage uh, the transparency, even though you're not able to see the person virtually, just like in your video game, can I understand what their capabilities are? Um, and that that's becoming super important. The third highlight comes from episode 85. The topic was perishable versus durable skills in automotive retail. And our very own senior vice president of automotive performance solutions, Kathy Palachko, filled in quite capably for me as the host, along with the guest panelist, Dave Zukowski and Matthew Daniel. I found a lot of value in this, a lot of eye-opening insight regarding the idea of perishable versus durable skills as it pertains to automotive retail. And I think you will, whether or not you're in the automotive space, let's listen in. So Matthew, you have written a couple of fascinating articles over the last couple of years that I've had the pleasure of reading. And in these articles, you're talking about hard skills versus soft skills, or what today we might call power skills or human skills. And you've proposed a, a different model that we should be thinking about that I think is just a great analogy for skills. Would, would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, let me let me share. I'm going to use words. I'm going to talk about durable versus perishable skills. But before that, I want to lead you all maybe down a little bit of a journey that I went on myself. So a few years ago, some research came out and essentially the message of the research was, look, skills aren't lasting like they used to. Uh, in fact, skills are more perishable than ever. The half-life of a skill, that is, 
how long that skill adds value to you uh, decreases by about 50% over five years. And what they were saying then, uh, there's an analyst by the name of Josh Burson who wrote a lot about this, uh, Burson by Deloitte. And he talked about the more technical the skill, the closer that half-life of the skill, again, the value that that skill provides value to you or the time it does, is it reduces by about 50% over two and a half years, the more technical it is. And so as I started to think about that whole concept, I think a lot of workforce development folks, especially folks in the learning and talent development community started to look around at each other and say, oh God, we've got to start producing content more quickly. We've got to get more programs out. We've got to retool our whole unit to think more quickly about how we get to market. And I, I don't disagree with that. I actually think it's really important. I think for those who live in the automotive world where you're year after year putting out new models and you've got to prepare a workforce to be ready for that, it's especially relevant. But ultimately, what I started to think about is we've historically talked about hard skills, you know, something that's technical about a platform or about a product, or we've thought of things in terms of soft skills. And uh, I can't think of a worse way to describe them, but communication and uh, uh, how you get out there and do strategic thinking or problem solving. And about that same time, really what occurred to me about this whole concept of the half-life of skills is I immediately started thinking, well, that means that some skills last longer and some skills don't last as long. And if I'm a business person, I don't really care about whether a, a skill is hard or soft. It, it makes no relevance. It's not relevant to me at all. It makes no difference. I started to think about power skills as a description and others. It really didn't, didn't matter. But if you're a business person who's making investments, you're, you're a business leader, and I'm trying to make a recommendation to a business leader about how they should think about skill development across a portfolio, then the fact that some skills are more durable and some skills are more perishable, that is the investment I make in that skill into my workforce either lasts longer or dissipates more quickly, actually matters a lot. How long those things matter to my workforce matters. So anyway, uh, I, I as I started to think about this concept of well, some skills I give to my workforce are more durable, then I actually need to be really thoughtful. Here, here's how that translates to me. I think there, historically, there's been like the T model. This came out of, uh, I, I think the team at IBM put out the first version of the T model skills, which is like, you need this base of soft skills, and then you need deep technical skills in one area. And then there was another iteration that looked like a, E model, and you had kind of multiple areas of depth. But ultimately, the way that I started to think about this more often was that honestly, the hard skills are kind of the foundation. They're the thing that everything works off of. These, um, let me try that again. What I started to think of was that these durable skills were the foundation, they were critical. And I think as we think about the way that we invest in our workforce, we tend to imagine that what we really need to do, if, if you've got a salesperson out on the lot, what you really need to do is get them up to speed with this year's makes and models. And you need to get them really sharp about features in the product, what they're going to go out and talk about. Those are the things that we tend to invest in really, really quickly. But it turns out if I can't hang my make and, and my product information on some version of understanding how to communicate. Look, I, I think, and we'll talk more about this as we go, but in, in retail in particular, it used to be that what you needed to do was know how to talk with a customer once they walked in on the, on the floor. Now what you need to do is you need to take those same communication skills and you need to figure out how to do it by phone. You need to know how to do it by email. You need to know how to do it by text. The fourth episode I'd like to highlight is episode 86, and the topic was what the metaverse means for corporate learning. Joining me on this was GP Strategy's very own Director of Learning Technologies, Mr. Tom Pizer. And we did something really unique on this one. We went ahead and talked about the idea of the impact of virtual reality in the metaverse, but we did it in the metaverse. That's right. We actually joined each other in a collaborative learning space in the metaverse recorded the podcast this episode actually ended up winning a platinum marcom award for innovation and uh, it was a lot of fun so we invite you to listen into the first jumping off point on it here's a question that i was thinking about that 
I think really pertains here to this concept of learning. And it would be, what types of learning experiences do you think can be paired well in this metaverse world? So this is really expanding at this point. And we've kind of put them into three categories right now. And, you know, I, I feel like these categories have the potential to expand, but we have seen um, virtual reality be effective with hard skills development. So being able to practice a skill such as operating a vehicle. Okay. Or uh, in, the, in the case of, you know, safety, operating a lift. You know, going through proper procedures, startups and and safety procedures and donning the you know particular equipment. We've also seen it be very valuable in soft skills development. I mean, at this point, you and I are interacting one on one. Well, imagine Absolutely. being able to to interact with either an individual, uh, say a also a recorded session with individuals that may be a branching based activity or even similar activities that could involve avatars, right? So it's a great opportunity to practice those soft skills in a safe space, right? And this, this is a safe space. And another area that was kind of a surprise to, to me is an environment like Arthur, uh, where we can work collaborative collaboratively in workshop environments. Uh, having the the tools to um, conduct workshop activities, uh, mm-hmm. maybe do some mind some mind mapping, um, conduct conversations, uh, those types of things. So we're seeing those three general areas being particularly powerful to the L and D environment. So if you look out here, I think this is kind of fun. Is not only when you talked That's about cool. events, Tom, but if you just take a look around, we have miles of space that is real estate for us to construct experiences, which is kind of cool. Now, Tom, you had mentioned these three key items of hard skills, soft skills, and events and meetings. So from a learning recap, I'm just gonna take my VR headset since I'm recording this, everyone, is uh, he had mentioned some hard skills, some soft skills, and events and meetings. This is, for example, an app like Arthur is a perfect complement for that in terms of just how much space you have to even construct like an annual meeting. Is that fair to say? Uh, I would say um, certainly you can conduct uh, team building activities in here. Um, You can conduct virtual events and trade shows. It all depends on the capabilities of the software that you're using in the virtual environment. You know, how many people can it it, uh, host? Gotcha. Are you two ready to jump back to the real world here? The fifth episode I'd like to highlight is episode 87. The topic here was digital learning and the flow of work. This was a true global panel. Joining me in the United States was our very own Chief Learning and Innovation Officer, Matt Donovan. And coming in through the magic of the virtual studio from Australia, our Managing Director of Learning Solutions for the APAC region, Mr. Ben Kayer. Let's listen into a snippet. It's actually funny, I'm here in Michigan supporting a virtual reality demo this week and everything you're saying is speaking to me about, you know, you've got the concepts and I'm kind of in that three, four and five moment right now and I'm just seeing all, all the, the things unraveling in my head going, oh, I'm totally doing that right now. So it's, it's so fun uh, when, you're, when you're speaking to that here. So Ben, my question for you would be this, and because I know you're actively engaged in these conversations mm. day in and day out. Why is this topic of, and let's put digital aside for a second. Let's just talk learning in the flow of work. Why is this so hot right now? Well, one of the things that's actually emerged from the research that I'm doing is how ineffective workplace learning has been for decades and decades. You know, it's, um, and especially in my domain, and, I, and by that, I mean, you know, leadership and professional development, it's, it's, it's one of the most complex learning pieces, right? It's you got to change your mindset, your behavior, you've got skills you got to learn, you got to go and deploy those in multiple different contexts, you know, so, and, and that context is going to be different for every single person. So it's a, it's, it's a very difficult domain of learning. And so when I look at what's going on in society, right, you've got disruption from automation affecting jobs. You've got, you know, we've all heard about the great resignation and the difficulty in retaining talent <laughs> right now. Um, I think COVID just compounded 
Well, I don't think. I mean, the research is already kind of pointing to the fact that it's just compounding a problem that's already been emerging or a change that's been emerging for some time. And so I think the urgency for organizations is, and including GP Strategies and every other company out there, is in a world where technical skills and process skills are potentially being disrupted through automation and you know we're finding that digitization is is taking certain customer facing tasks away and you know the nature of our job is changing but the skills that will be left are people still need to be led people need to be problem solving people need to be thinking through things so it's these higher cognitive skills these social skills you know from coming from my perspective and the reality is organizations for forever have only invested in those areas for their top talent you know, they're new leaders, they're senior leaders, um, you know, and there's a huge swathe. If you're a bank with 100,000 employees, traditionally, it's been very difficult to execute learning for that whole population. You've only hit segments. And so I think when you put all of that together, right, the scale of trying to reskill and upskill my workforce, the, the, the urgency to do so through disruption and change, when you, when you string all of that together, that ability, and I have to put digital in there as well, that ability to integrate learning into the flow of work, to create an agile learning culture where people aren't waiting to be told what to learn, but are in a habit of learning in the flow of their work. And then the company enabling that to happen, creating that culture is, it's not just a nice to have, it's a must have. Uh, and that's what I'm dealing with right now in Asia is clients trying to navigate that. Um, and there's a lot of noise out there. So it's not easy to, to do, but it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely an important need right now is, is not just learning in the flow of work, but using technology to enable that in your business. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, what are your thoughts on this in terms of trending? I, I know that Ben has shared a lot of insight, but what's your take on it? I mean, you know, if you think about March of 2020 for all of us, it was a defining moment, especially in the L&D space. I mean, March 2020, we all isolated around the world. We had to find different ways we connected with customers. We had to find different ways we collaborated with each other because we went out of our normal face-to-face -face modes or our live modes, and we had to change things. That disruption said we had to take common core skill sets and practices and behaviors and do something different with it. So now, all of a sudden, I don't have 90 days 12 weeks to roll out a really cool training program to upskill everybody to figure out how we need to do this. So the idea is that you have to get into and build upon the things we know how to do. If we all have the fundamentals of collaboration, but we're going to use a new technology. I don't have to teach you everything on you know, the, the 101 level of collaboration. I got to build on and talk about how we're going to apply it differently in the context of why we're trying to do this. So if you think of March 2020, June 2020, et cetera, every couple of months, there was a new change that was happening. So the, the idea that we can go into those first modes, take a step back, teach everybody everything, a completely different thing. It takes too long and, and we're too slow to be able to drive it out there and do that. So, so workplace learning has to help meet that increasingly uh, disruptive world. The sixth episode I'd like to highlight from this past year was episode 91, getting maximum effectiveness out of your training budget. I think that's a very important topic for all of us as we seek to maximize return on investment. Our special guest was Buffalo's very own Ashley Johnson. She is one of our esteemed directors of business development specializing in the power industry. Let's listen in on my conversation with Ashley. Thinking about this, what are some of the things that you're seeing that Let's just say, and I say this very politely, but what are organizations doing wrong with their training budget? What are you seeing here? Yeah, you know, it's a great question because I do like to challenge the ask a lot of times when someone comes prepared with, this is what I think we need. You know, it's it's uncovering, well, what, what resulted in that? What's the business driver? So some of the themes that I have seen um, in our relationships and working to help develop a, a learning transformation is thinking not not holistically, so um, not seeing the big picture. So many companies have perceived gaps. Maybe it's a safety concern. Maybe it's a lack of resources and, and able to really uh, dedicate to building a program or it's outdated processes or materials. So a lot of times um, people will come thinking that they know what they need and what they need to fix things and really change for the future. Um, but really it's just 
instead of jumping right into development, taking a step back and developing a governance model, um, going through a learning assessment to truly understand what your current state is so that you're not just creating content, hmm. you know, and, and putting money into solutions that might not fit. So it's the agile piece that I think people get into trouble with. Well, and, and that's very interesting. And one of the things that I've been most impressed about with GP Strategies is that when we say we're a workforce transformation company, it really means that that we're not going to just say, hey, Ashley's going to prescribe a learning solution. It's going to be, what's your real business situation here? That's only one lever you can pull. Am I hearing that right? Absolutely. Because everyone's got um, you know, a stake in the game. So it's understanding what the business drivers are, but then also what do the frontline supervisors need? And does that connect to what the you know business objectives are for the organization? And then it's understanding how to tailor what you're building to make sure that it is ready for some of the challenges we're seeing with a multi-generational workforce and um, you know, need for more modern solutions, but not moving away from the more structured traditional approaches that have been effective for decades. So it's that balance. But without designing that model up front and just jumping right into development, you you do tend to overspend and not get the results all the time that you're looking for. For our seventh highlighted episode, we're going to stay with our friends in Buffalo, New York. Episode 92 focused on the concept of leading high-performing teams. I was pleased to be joined by Katie Bailey, GP learning strategist, and yes, Buffalo resident. We had a lot of fun in this conversation, but you'll also pick up a lot of great information. Let's listen to a quick snippet. So, you know, today's topic and the thing we asked you to come on and and riff on with me is really this idea of leading high-performing teams. And so the question I really had for you is kind of what's the fire? I mean, why focus on teams now? What's the urgency? It's a great question. I think that there's always, I mean, it's always an important time to talk about teams, right? And team dynamics. But I think what makes right now so unique is just where we are um, in the world of work. So I, I, I don't have direct statistics on this, but I would venture to guess that we're in a point of time where perhaps there are more newly formed teams than at many other points in time in history, right? So if you think about it, we have organizations that have restructured uh, due to COVID or maybe some of the after effects. So you've got teams that maybe are different sizes, organizations upsize, they downsize. Some organizations change their geographic footprint. Some organizations went and changed the location, um, the physical location of where their employees are. Some of them aren't meeting physically anymore. We certainly saw a lot in terms of talent mobility this year. So people changing jobs and coming into new organizations and new teams being formed and new leaders. So for all of those reasons, and I'm sure some more that I can't think of, we are at a point in time where new teams are forming and they're doing work more quickly and they have to do it in perhaps different ways than ever before, leveraging different types of technology and different geographic or physical setups. So I think it's the perfect time to talk about what makes a high-performing team and what the leader's role in that is. I think I could second that. I mean, we've been seeing this, this great resignation concept and all the tsunami ripple effects that it's Mm -hmm. had right here. So if we look at this then, um, let's talk about a couple of the things that maybe you're seeing as a learning strategist confidentially that are going wrong. So what are some of the common stumbles that leaders are making when it comes to leading their teams? Yeah, no names will be mentioned. It's okay. Yes, confidential. Some of this this is rooted in practice. And some of it's actually rooted in research. We did some research last year about common leadership stumbles and successes just in general. Some of the most common leadership stumbles uh, that really came to light, this may or may not be a surprise, but um, communication and decision-making were two big things that when we asked people, what were the biggest stumbles that you saw leaders make? uh, That's one of the things that came to life. And in the inverse, and I know we'll get there, but in the inverse, we talked about, you know, what does a leader do well, a good leader do well? Um, Communication also came up on that list as well. So it's like the best of times and the worst of times, but, you know, (laughs) so that's what our research told us. I, I think in practice, what I hear when I talk to clients and customers, we really talk a lot about um, in some ways, the 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 I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but almost like the rudderless ship. Like we have these teams, and we we really haven't had that moment in time. The flow of business is moving so quickly, and we've got targets. We have all these things we need to do. 
But like, maybe we also just need to stop and pause and figure out who we are as a team, how do, you know, what are the goals we want to accomplish? So I always liken this to like, if you were shooting a bow and arrow, like you could just pick it up and shoot it. But if you took a second to like learn mm. how to learn how to do it and really aim and focus, that shot would be much more effective. And so when I think about leadership development training and team training in general, it really is taking a moment to pause and say, okay, where do we want to go? And how are we going to get there instead of just, you know, the ready fire aim approach? I love that. I might have to steal that one about the bow and arrow. It <laughs> makes so much sense when you're saying that, like the the clarity's coming into mind here. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, Katie. Okay. Is we we talked about some stumbles here, but if you had to break it down and use all of your your combined knowledge, and and I would say I don't know if it would be codify this, but what would you say would be like? Give me like three to four bullet points of what you would say would be key leadership behaviors that would drive high performing teams. Yeah, I absolutely can do that, and this is this you can is do that. I can. And one of the main reasons why is because this is what we train leaders on, right? So when we bring leaders of teams into our training sessions, we're talking with them about what are those concrete, actionable leadership behaviors that drive high-performing teams. So I would love to share four with you today, if that's okay. And you, you do it. I have got a pen and paper right now. Okay. So I am I am your student and I'm writing things <laughs> down right now. Okay. Okay. So there's there's always going to be an infinite number of things that leaders can do, but I'm going to give you four categories of things, under which, of course, there's probably a, a billion sub bullets. But one okay. Of the big, okay, here we go. One of the biggest things that leaders can do in terms of building and forming a, a high performing team is the concept of building trust. Um, so obviously that, that trust and that dyadic relationship that they're forming with the people that they lead. The second part of that, and there's a lot of individual components that come into that as okay. well as, as the dyadic and we'll get there. The second piece that leaders can do is creating connection, which I think is now more important than ever. There's so much research right now about people craving connection, particularly in this remote and virtual and digitally enabled world. So what does that look like from a leadership perspective? So connecting the team to each other, connecting the team to you, all that good stuff. Okay. Um, great leaders also seek alignment. I think this is another really critical piece that we're seeing uh, as a stumble in some of the remote and hybrid world is it's difficult to get people on the same page. So your team, okay, you know me, I'm going to keep using these analogies, but you got to row in the same direction, right? So if somebody's rowing over here and somebody's rowing over there, it's really the leader's job to make sure that everybody knows everybody's in the boat. Everybody's got an oar or whatever you row with and everybody's rowing in that mm -hmm. right towards <laughs> that common goal. Clearly my, 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 uh, yes, my knowledge in that area is limited, but you're by the great lakes though. So I get it. There's true. no problem that is right true. there. More of a kayak okay. So, yeah. So far, you've got building trust, you've got creating connection, seeking alignment, yes. and you mentioned four. Is there going to be a fourth yeah. one here for me? Okay. I commend, I commend both your memory and your note-taking skills, so thank you. <laughs> um, and yeah, so the fourth one, and this hopefully will be music to people's ears, it's the concept of driving results, right? So you could be the best team in the universe, and you could have all this trust and a great relationship, but if you don't get things done, if you're not working to achieve your goals and work in greater service of the organization, what are you doing? The eighth episode I'd like to highlight is episode 94. The topic, Coachability, the Leadership Superpower. That's the name of a fantastic book authored by GP Strategies board member, Kevin Wildey. Now this is one that we actually cut also as a pure video. So we encourage you to check it out on our YouTube channel, GP Strategies. Like, subscribe, hit that notifications button. But it also plays well as a podcast. So let's have a listen this concept here of um, why should leaders care about coachability? And, you know, one of the things I would say in your book is, is that you said it, this kind of started out as a study first on just derailing leaders. Why do leaders derail? And you found a pattern. So can you talk a little bit more about that, Kevin? Yeah, here, here's a story. So I would meet every year with uh, the this, this senior team in my old job, CEO, et cetera. And we'd talk about the top 500 leaders, all the officers, all the directors worldwide, and really just a terrific group of talent. You know, who gets promotion? Who should we move? Training, et cetera. And I started noticing, ah, not everybody makes it. And there was this very small set of derailed leaders that we thought were going to do great and didn't. 
got over their heads. And in many cases, we had asked them to leave. And I started studying that from a, gee, that's kind of something we should avoid. Let's go look at that. And it was a very uncomfortable conversation to bring into the senior team Hmm. to talk about, hey, we got to avoid this. Let's start looking at it. Uh, and I found them to be more receptive than my fears. And like, okay, we're going to work on this a bit. So as much as we were working on success profiles, um, I started doing a deep dive and actually a postmortem on anything that went wrong with a derailment. Would interview their manager, would um, you know, pull their personnel file, look at things. And I found a clear pattern. In fact, I found one question that in their 360 survey of record that almost predicted the derailment. <laughs> I don't know if you want to know the question or not, but I, uh, I do want to know it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Absolutely. So, so the question was, does this leader seek and respond to feedback? Does this leader seek and respond to feedback? They were mm. 30% lower compared to my, my, you know, uh, 30%, my, wow. 30% lower than the normal group. And uh, that led me about, well, what was going on there? And I think what's going on is they developed blind spots. We all have blind spots, let's admit that. But these people had blind spots in really important areas that led to problems. Uh, and that started me down the path about, gee, um, why do leaders lose the interest in getting feedback or active in that process? And then how do you, how do you turn it around? And as I looked at um, another study we did, the firm that did our 360s, um, they had a database of 50,000 leaders not derail leaders, all leaders worldwide, okay. all levels, all of that. And we said, let's take this coachability set of questions that Kevin found, like, you know, seeks feedback and play it by level. And what we found is this stunning decline from entry-level supervisor, 71% positive, yep, <laughs> love getting feedback, want to learn, want to get better, to by time you got to a senior leader, it was well under 50%. Like, oh, oh. Now I see what's going on. And I think there's some assumptions behind that. We did, by the way, find highly coachable leaders at all level. And this, so, okay. so point number one is, Michael, um, coachability helps you avoid blind spots. Sometimes you can get in trouble if you have blind spots and you don't know when they're you know, chasing you. So watch out for that. But I also found that highly coachable leaders, again, number of studies academically and others, we found that highly coachable leaders at all levels, uh, better levels of employee engagement, higher overall leadership rankings, innovation, creativity, influence, you know, mm. on and on and on, higher performance ratings. And I'll get this one, uh, two studies that looked at coachability and promotability. And yes, of course, they were 20% higher in ratings if you were highly coachable. So lots mm. of good things that go on if you stay highly coachable. But I think both mother nature and our own assumptions get in the way. And so the second yeah, thing, lots yeah. of positives, lots of positives if you stay coachable. But here's what I tell my class. You know, unless you really think about this topic and do something, today is as coachable as you're ever going to be for the rest of your life. <laughs> unless you do something. And got that's a few a ideas. Sobering, that. That's a sobering thought. So what I want to do is transition this over to the, the second biggest milestone I had for today's conversation is why, why is that? Why do you start out um, an open book? open to feedback, why do you start to lose that over time, is, particularly as you ascend into more of a, a leadership position? What did you find on that? So back to the studies as well as the coaching I've done, I found a number of things that we can all identify with. Uh, one is I call it the false finish line. And that's the notion about, hey, I'm now the leader. I'm in charge. I don't have to learn as much. I have to do stuff. Uh, and I think that's a notion that I'm now perfectly formed or I'm done with my development, as opposed to the, the, the highly coachable leaders that have a mindset about, you know what, I'm an unfinished product. I got to keep working on this leadership game. And so that false finish line assumption gets in the way. Uh, related to that is what I call the superhuman stance, which is now that I'm the leader, if I ask for feedback, hmm. people will doubt me like, oh, you know, I, you know, I better not ask. He doesn't uh, have all the answers, right? Oh, my yeah, God. I've got to show. I, that's that heroic leadership model. Uh, and particularly, uh, you think about the challenges of the COVID and the economy that we need leaders to step up, show the way, rally the troops. That's all good. But if you're not coachable as you're going through that, you get into trouble. And I think that one. The third one I've seen is like, it's a funny one. It's called the boss booster bubble. And I don't know if you've noticed that, but oftentimes when you're in charge, when you have power, uh, people start filtering what they tell you. And they learn, gee, for mm. my own career interests, I'm going to tell Michael good news. He's happy. I'm yes, not going to tell him the bad yes, news, yes. especially about himself. <laughs> and most leaders are like, look, there's two sides to the story. But some people get caught in the trap about all I'm hearing is good news. Nobody comes in my yeah. office and tells me yeah. what I need to work on. So 
I must be okay. Uh, and then there's the, the other dynamic I'll mention is the uh, what I call the lonely lament, that I notice the higher up mm. you go up the ladder of leadership, the less you've got a peer group. And if you think about our earlier years, peer groups are always, you know, comparing notes, talking to each other, giving each other advice and looking for it. And so you've got that natural learning group when you're a frontline employee, when you're a supervisor, when you've got your friends. And then as you get in charge of things, there's not that many around. And that gets in the way. I'll mention one more, if I may, one more, which is probably Absolutely. the heart of things. Keep like, it going. I yeah, am not going to stop yeah, you no, I, I am absorbing this. The, way. The, the, one, the other one is like, you know what? I'll go through seminars or training, even reading my book on coachability, and people say, you know what, I buy this concept. I don't want blind spots. I want to do all the good things you talked about. But not now. I'm really, really busy. I'm going to put that on my list mm. when things slow down. And, and I call that the, the, the magic moment mirage. Like, okay, things are going to slow down at some point. I'm going to work on my own development. Like, boy, <laughs> you tell me that things slow down. <laughs> and, we get busy. and I think the busyness sometimes gets in the way about stepping back, how am I doing? What should I listen to? What should I be working on now? Um, and we all suffer with that. And, and, and I just find that what I tried to do in the book is find little tips, little things, and even for your, you know, your, your viewers here and listeners, like what's, what's like one thing that could add to my game 10%, 10% better, one little thing I can bring in to, uh, to my coachability. The ninth episode I would like to highlight is episode 95. The topic was talent mobility. This is a very, very cool podcast. Had a dynamic duo of special guests. I was joined in the virtual studio by Dr. Cheryl Jackson, GP Strategies Organizational Design and Change Practice Lead, along with Akash Savdaria, Vice President of Talent Product Strategy and Solutions for Learning Technologies Group. They both opened my eyes to this concept of talent mobility and, and really the opportunities to grow, develop, and retain your most precious resource, your people. Have a listen. You two are heavy hitters in this world of thinking about uh, engaging employees and providing the tools and resources. So Cheryl, I wanted to start off here um, really just talking about the fact that you and Akash had, I think as they call it in the pop music world, a collab recently where you wrote a blog post and it was really about employee-led development. I, I can see you chuckling over there. So I know I'm doing a good job. You were here. on fire today. I, I just I got <laughs> my dad jokes are just, they are just killing it here. So hopefully my kids are not listening in another room here and at the house here. But okay, so one of the things in leading up to this, you had mentioned um, as you and Akash were writing this um blog post is really that aligning employees skills to job titles and structure. And, and I quote here is the most important work organizations never get around to. So Dr. Cheryl, put on your professor cap here and tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. And I think this was actually a quote that uh, I was very happy to include. Uh, this was a quote from Akash that he shared with us in one of our early discussions. And I just love it because this is the work that that I do. It's all about organizing and creating a structure for these companies to uh, to lay the, the foundation and the framework. So I, I say it's very much like you walk into a room and it's super messy and you say, gosh, you just need to start cleaning up this room. And so sometimes we start um, hanging up clothes and, and start taking our pencils and our our papers and we just start putting them places because we just want a clean room. And it's it's like, great, now we have this clean room, but when it's time to go back and start finding things, we don't really know where we put everything. At least I don't because I just wanted a clean room now, but I don't know where all of those things were because I didn't take the time to design it to be useful for me when I come back later to actually search for those things. So an organizer or a professional would come in and say, hold on, before we get crazy and just start putting things in different places, let's let's take a look at how you're going to use the space. Uh, where do you like to work and where do you like to rest and how do you like to organize and put things away and how are you going to 
you know, look for it later. And when it's time to clean up, how do you like to clean up? And they ask you all these questions that you think don't matter at first and slow the process down. But ultimately, they streamline the process later. They create this structure and this framework. And that's what we do in organizations as we, we come in and say, how many jobs do you need? And what does the structure look like? And what job titles do you want? You can't just start offering you get a job title and you get a job title and (laughs) what skills do you want to use and what's a nice fancy title that you would like to have because later they make no sense and you can't move people around what's equivalent is a a a specialist on this side equivalent to a specialist on that side now they're making different amounts of pay and how do you align that because it creates confusion and then you have different uh, sets of skills and now we don't know how to train on those because there's no consistency because we didn't take the time up front to establish something that made sense and so just creating a little time on the front end to create the structure or this framework or an organization scheme that makes sense uh saves so much time on the background. It creates an opportunity for clarity, visibility, and and structure Mm. that, you know, makes it actually usable on the back end. Well, Dr. Cheryl, I have to say a couple things here as kudos for you. Number one, you did your academic best. You did a proper citation early on there (laughs) in terms of honoring Akash with the quote. So well done with that. I love the fact that you also brought in a very layman style analogy for what could be a pretty complex topic here. So I'm, I'm loving where your head's at there. There's so much to unpack in what you've said here. So Akash, we're going to turn to you here in the quantum accelerator. Um, so putting on your software development hat or your, your architectural engineering hat here, what I want to ask you is how would we build out career and skill paths slash skill requirements in something like a talent mobility tool to enable people to discover and understand skill gaps for leadership roles. And and I say this because we don't always know what those skills are. So what's your take on that? You know, um, to be very honest, the stuff that Cheryl just spoke about, it is really paramount for an organization to have a you know, solid job architecture, or you can call it career architecture and, and skill taxonomy in place before they even think about talent mobility. And um, yeah, for, for the same reasons, right? It, it provides more visibility for the employee to understand from a career planning perspective, right? What are the jobs that they should be aspiring for? What are the skills that they should be developing? It provides that, that common blueprint and language when they're thinking about career development. And while I loved all the episodes, there can only be 10 for the recap. So looking at the list here, I'm gonna highlight episode 97. The topic was diversity, equity, and inclusion, practical versus performative. This was a fantastic and eye-opening conversation with PDT Global CEO, Angela Peacock. She joined me from England. We had a great conversation. I think you're going to find a lot of value in this one. Organizations that are saying we're well-meaning, we've got some good intent, but shifting that gear, what are your thoughts on it? So when we look at that, and and if I can go back to something you said, putting the flag up is better than the opposite, i.e. not putting the flag up or not posting the black square. But let's just break that down. All the research tells us that the great stuff people do externally, like putting up the flag, right, like um, posting the square, that actually makes them looked upon more favorably by applicants thinking of coming to their organization. Okay, so externally, Mm -hmm, the very thing you're trying to do in this work, and let's not lose sight of it, which is increase underrepresented and historically marginalized groups in our organizations. That's it. That's why we do it. Then actually doing that work is positive externally. However, when you look at the damage it does internally, and when you also look at the damage that happens when one of those external people apply, get into your organization, come in because you did all this good stuff in the, up the front, mm-hmm. 
but actually when they got in, you're rife with um, transphobia or you're rife with race discrimination, then actually it's more damaging than if you hadn't done it in the first place. So that, does that make mm. sense? So, so Abs- in- oh, yeah, it does. Well, yeah. The light bulbs are going off in my head there because it's mm-hmm. like, hey, we're right. cool, we're hip, we're woke, and then you come in yep. and it's – it's, it's the exact opposite. And it's complete opposite. And obviously, if you're in already, how the hell does that feel? You know, oh, when, yeah. Yeah. So um, just post George Floyd's murder, we had, um, I, I cannot tell you, I was w- working around the clock. We had, it felt like every CEO that we'd ever touched or worked with before was picking up and saying, can you talk me through this? What the hell do I do? Now, what what we said was, what have you done already? And with no no exceptions, they had posted the black square. When we then said, can you tell me, here we go again, what the plan is that will actually make you a less, less racially biased organization? So you're going to stand up to what you said out there. Kind of tumbleweed. I mean, a few little mm-hmm, efforts. Right, crickets. The odd listening group. But they didn't have anything that fundamentally held anyone accountable for making that difference. And that is where the rubber hits the road. That's where we need to change what we do because the damage we do to individuals internally is huge. It it really is. And we can't underestimate that. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a lot of work to do on that side, Angela. So let's think about this. You're, You're bringing up some great topics for me in terms of thoughts. And one of those might be, okay, what are the warning signs, right? So if an organization is saying, okay, I'm now aware of this idea of performative versus practical, there might be things I've been doing well intending that are actually causing some major issues and uh, really harming, I would say, employee engagement, fair to say. So what are some warning signs that you'd say that someone's tipping their scales from the practical to the performative? So, Various places. And, and again, you, you heard me saying earlier, you know, measurement's really important. And some of the measurement things that I talk about are quite wacky and they're very new. But let me start mm-hmm. with the one that you flagged there, the employment engagement survey. We underestimate how powerful our employment engagement surveys are in flagging the warning signs for DE and I. Now, providing you have a baseline and the baseline needs to do two things. It needs to show you how inclusive you are as an organisation preferably by manager. In other words, you mm. need to be able to cut the data down to the individual human that's leading a department. We we really have seen a difference in the questions answered when you know they are about DE&I right? <laughs> compared to when we hide them. And when we hide them, we talk about how you feel within the organization. Do I feel heard? Do I feel I'm going to get my next promotion? Do I feel like my ideas are taken on? So it's a feeling description. So there you go. 10 of our greatest hits from this past year. As we march into episode 101 and beyond, we want to thank you for coming along on the ride with us. It is an honor to represent so many thought leaders across the spectrum of organizational learning and development and talent transformation. So on behalf of GP Strategies and our fellow partners across the Learning Technologies Group, we want to wish you and your families and your organizations nothing but success in the coming year. Thank you for listening and we'll see you around. The Performance Matters Podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts or listen on our website at gpstrategies.com.